Thank you for allowing me to be here. Uh, I was preaching a few weeks ago in Africa. The service went for six and a half hours. I promise you that won't be the case today. But uh, thank you for this special uh, opportunity to be here on this august occasion of the 10-year anniversary of Dr. Kennedy's homegoing. Can we pray? Let's go to the Lord. Thank you, Father, for your word, for it certainly instructs us. It gives us the ability to live rightly today, to one day stand before you, having lived this life, and to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Lord, my prayer would be that you'd forgive me. Uh, These, they've come to see Jesus, and I'm simply a sinner. I pray that through the power of your word and through the presence of your spirit in this time, Lord, that you would in fact minister to us, you'd teach us, that you'd have your way in us and be glorified. And, and now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Now, while I was at Knox Seminary, and I, I did have the, the privilege of attending Knox, I, I preached a number of sermons, and I, I believe that, that almost every sermon I preached from Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. This is, you'd know, to be called the Great Commandment or the Great Commission. In fact, I preached so many messages from this same passage that there were some at Knox that were convinced I was either unaware or could not that there were any other scriptures or that I could not speak from any other passage. Now, you know, I think I did preach from one other passage, but to be fair, I think they were right in that this was the passage I preferred. But to prove to you this morning that I can, in fact, preach from a different passage besides Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, I've picked an entirely different passage to preach from today. Now, Rob has shared with me some of the work that you all have been doing on revisiting your vision and your mission. In fact, it's in your bulletin today. I'm I'm pleased to see the four pieces that this church stands on are pillars, worship, discipleship, community outreach, and cultural renewal. You know, these really are the historic values of this congregation since 1959, and I am so proud of Rob. I've listened to the last four messages that he's preached on these four things. Praise God that he's raised up a man like this for this time. Don't you agree? Now, if you, if you take these four thoughts and you put them together, really they're answering one simple question, and here it is, how then shall we live? Praise God that you're considering that in these days. And as I prayed and, and thought about what it was that I could add to this conversation, there's a particular passage that came to mind. I believe God brought it to my mind for me to share today. Now, now I'm going to speak some pretty bold words here. I would say this. I believe this passage that we're going to look at today is the key to what will happen in your life and the work that God has called you to do in these days to come. In fact, if I could know the degree in which you believe the words that we're about to read spoken by Jesus himself, I could almost predict everything about what will happen in your life and ministry in the coming days. How often that you'll witness for Jesus Christ, how passionately you'll fight the fight that God's called you to, and how you'll finish this race. Now, I say almost because I'm not a prophet or I'm not the son of a prophet. I'm merely a man, and these are, in fact, the words of Christ. But that said, I still contend that your ability to believe the words that we're about to read say absolutely 
everything about you and what God will do through you in the coming days. So do you have your Bibles with you? If you do, would you take them and would you turn to this entirely different passage, Matthew 28, and we're going to read from verses 16 to 18, sorry. Now, you might have some sort of electronic device, but if you don't, there is a Bible in front of you. I'd love it if you would take it and turn to this passage and make sure that I I speak what it says here. This is Matthew 28, verses 16 through 18. This is the word of our Lord. It says this, And then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And they saw him, and they worshipped him, but... Some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me and in heaven and on earth. Now, I'd ask you as you look at this passage, before we launch into this, just a few general thoughts about the passage. Who is being spoken of here? Now, now literally, if you could go back and find a commentary, perhaps in the library, you might read somebody saying some words like this, well, certainly none of the 11 are being spoken of here after what's just happened in Jerusalem. But perhaps if some of the 500 were present, well, maybe we could say these words of them. But I ask you the question, is that what this passage says? Are the 500 spoken of? No, they're This passage is speaking of the 11. And I think we should be careful when we want to change Scripture because we don't like what it says. But I think the point for us today is in this key, and that's why I don't want to skip over it. It was the 11. Now, what did they do? First of all, this verse says they went away to Galilee, to this mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. If you know anything about the 11, they're they're commonly mostly fishermen. To go to a mountain, certainly in a foreign, far-off place, would be a real act of faith. And so we say, way to go for that. And and then we see in verse 17, it says, when they saw him, they worshipped him. And by, by the way, this is the absolute natural reaction to everyone who sees Jesus. In fact, one day when you see Jesus face to face, you know what you're going to do? You're going to worship him. Now, the truth is, you might as well learn to do it today. Why wait until that day? But there is coming a day when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. It might as well be today. Well, then what happens? And this is the the issue with this passage. What happens at the end of this verse? It says, but some doubted. Now, I think it's easy to believe that in a group this size this morning, especially after 10 years of being without Dr. Kennedy uh, on the same road with us, running and walking and carrying out the mission God's called us to, don't you believe that it's possible that there are some people, especially when Rob gets up and talks about the great days that are ahead of us here at Coral Ridge, isn't it possible that there could be some people here today that doubt. I think it is. I think we'd be crazy if we didn't recognize that. Well, Jesus then takes that problem and turns it into an answer. And he gives us the corrective that I believe that his disciples needed in those days, but I believe it's the corrective we need today as well. And that's this verse, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So Jesus gives his disciples, and I believe us, the very foundation for our life and ministry. 
First, we've got to believe this, that all authority in heaven and earth actually resides with Jesus Christ today. We can absolutely trust Him. There is nothing that can happen to us today that is not under His control, under His power. This truth is what allows us to get up and to go out and to act boldly in these days. Without believing this, we will fail in ministry. God is going to do some incredibly thing, amazing things in the coming days, I believe, here at Coral Ridge. And if that's true, then you're going to believe this statement that all authority has been given to Christ. This is the very belief that allows me to go into villages in Africa and to sit with the entire population, most of whom are uh, infected with AIDS. I can hug them. I can cry with them. I can hold their hands. I can pray. Listen, if you knew anything about me in my past, you would understand that there was a point in my past when I was absolutely petrified of dying, about being around anybody that was sick like that. So it is this understanding that's given me the ability to overcome fear and to act. So I think it's the same thing that we need to consider today. But, you know, so there is this idea that we ought to trust Jesus. But there is a natural word that comes after trust, isn't there? It's trust and obey. You know the old hymn. That's why it makes all the sense in the world that the next words out of Jesus' mouth would contain for us a mandate, a commandment to go and to share the gospel until every person on this earth has had a chance to hear. Trust and obey. Here's the point. We're not commanded to do simply anything that we like. The Christian life is not some sort of smorgasbord, a cafeteria where one goes along and picks, well, I'll have a little of this and a little of that, but oh, oh, oh none of that. You know, it's one of the, the things that concerns me when I, when I hear of, of churches doing uh, uh, studies on the giftedness. Now, now, God certainly gives gifts to his congregation, but oftentimes we use giftedness to be the excuse for not doing the thing that, that we feel like we're not called or gifted to do. There's so many Christians, pastors even, that will say, my ministry. And when they do, they're referring to something entirely different than what Christ would have them do. They're doing their work, their plan, their way. And it makes me shudder. There was a young man who had graduated from Oxford Seminary. He returned to say goodbye to his favorite professor who invited him in. And the professor asked him to take a seat. He said, young man, what are your plans now that you've graduated? And he said quite proudly, well, I'm going into law, replied the young man. Well, that's fine. The professor said, what then? He said, well, I hope to advance to the presidency of our firm. He said, well, excellent. What then? Well, then I hope to be elected to the parliament and become a member of the House of Lords. Well, that's excellent. And after that, what then? Well, I have some excellent ideas for England, and I hope to present them to the legislature. Wonderful. What then? Well, I, I guess I haven't really thought about that too much. I suppose that I'll retire. He said, yes, yes, but what then? Well, I'll enjoy myself for a few years, I suppose. He said, fine, fine, but what then? The young man says, well, I don't know. I suppose I'll die. The professor said, yes, yes, but... What then? The young man says, why, well, I haven't given that any thought at all. I don't know. The professor jumped up and said, young man, you're a fool. Go home and plan your life. 
Well, there are at least two ways that we recognize today that that young man was foolishly unprepared, especially for those of us trained in EE. We know the first problem in what he said was the end-of-life question, what would happen to him when he died, he did not know. Now, if we were honest with ourselves, again, in a group this size, there are certainly some here this morning that have that same issue. And my prayer would be that you'd take Rob up on his offer and come back and speak to one of the elders or myself or Rob this morning. We don't want you to leave this room not knowing for certain what will happen to you when you die. Please don't be proud. I remember, you know, there are even pastors that don't know the answer of what's going to happen to them when they die. During the first, my first involvement here at Coral Ridge, I came to an EE training clinic. You, you do know Evangelism Explosion is the lay witness training program of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. Did you know that? That's what it is. And so I came here to be trained in Evangelism Explosion in 1995. We had a, a pastor's prayer group in the morning, and with this one particular pastor didn't know how to get to heaven. Can you imagine? Well, he gave his heart to Christ after 40 years of ministry. He went back to his church that next Sunday and said, Now, folks, only up until now I've been talking about Jesus, who I only knew about. But today I'm going to preach to you Christ, whom I know. Now, you can imagine the difference that made in the congregation, the same difference that it's made in your life. That's the first bit there. But there's a second, perhaps more subtle problem that this young man had that, frankly, I believe affects almost every one of us, perhaps every one of us in this room today. And that's this. He had made his own plans. The truth is that none of us who name the name of Christ have any right whatsoever to make our own plans until we first of all consider the plans that Christ would have for us. Because here's the truth, and it, perhaps it's an inconvenient truth, but here it is. The body that you're sitting in right now, guess what? It's not your own. The mind that you would use to concoct these plans, however great they might be, guess what? It's not yours. Guess what? The hands and the feet that you would use to carry out this mission that you've concocted, guess what? They're not yours. They belong to Christ. They've been bought with the, the price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We're not our own. We belong to him, simply put. In honor of the establishment of Dr. Kennedy's library, I'll tell you this. I remember Dr. Kennedy one time used to say, you know, I, I have a number of books that I own, but I, I don't possess them. They've been borrowed by various people over the years who've somehow forgotten to return them to me. I own them, but I do not possess them. I don't get any use from them. I don't learn from them. They're of no service to me. Yet I bought them. I own them, but I do not possess them. And then he would turn it around and make the point that you already know. Does the God who bought you possess you? Have you really yielded yourself completely and only to his plan for your life? Con contrast that young man from Oxford University that we just heard about with a, another young man, a graduate of Wheaton College. He was the class president, the most popular man on campus. He was a wrestling champion and amateur poet. He was the man who was absolutely at home with God, a man of great devotion. He gave his life to serve Christ in the mission field. You've certainly heard of him. His name was Jim Elliott. 
Perhaps you remember back in the 1950s when five missionaries went into the jungles of Ecuador so that they could share the gospel to the Aka Indians. And after much preparation, they landed. Jim and the others faced these natives who came out with spears. Every one of the missionaries, by the way, had a weapon, but none of them used them. They instead found their bodies floating down the river with eight-foot Aka spears going through them. When Jim was a senior in college, Jim Elliott wrote these words in his diary. I, I frankly can't even imagine a young college student writing such words. This young man was soon to be plunged through with a spear. He was contemplating getting, giving his life to the service of Christ, and he said these words. He said, He makes his ministers a flame of fire. Am I ignitable? God, deliver me from the dread asbestos of other things. Saturate me with the oil of the Spirit that I might in fact be aflame. But, and then this moment came in his writing when he recognized something. He said, but flame is, is transient. It's often short-lived. Canst thou bear this, my soul, to be short-lived? And then an awareness came to his thinking, and he said, But wait, in me dwells the spirit of the great short-lived, whose zeal for God's house consumed him. O oh God, make me thy fuel, O oh flame of God. A fool. He threw his life away, some might say. Well, he also wrote in his diary as he contemplated the prospects of losing his life. He is no fool to give away what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. Trust and obey. At first, we have to believe that everything is, in fact, under the control of Christ. And then we have to get up and to begin to do the thing, to obey and to act. And most importantly, we have to do it today. You know, there are so many people who say one day when the conditions are this or they're better and then I'll do that. The truth is, and I guess if you don't hear anything else from me, hear this. Today is our time. This is our time. This is the moment that we've been called to. You don't have another moment. And perhaps hundreds of billions of centuries from now, you'll be thinking about what you did or didn't do in these days right now. So my encouragement to you would be hurry to do what God has called you to. This mission, this vision that God's given you, do it now. Today is the day of salvation. Here's the bottom line. Don't waste your life. Trust God. Obey that he does, in fact, have a plan for your life today. And now, my dear friends, to finish up this morning, I fear I must slip into the, the next verse, this verse called the Great Commandment. I'm, I mean, sorry, I am the president of Evangelism Explosion. You'll forgive me. Here's the question. When this all occurred, and first they doubted, and then Christ assured them that everything was, in fact, under his control, and then he commanded them to go and do his bidding and to take the gospel to the very ends of the earth. Here's a simple question. What did these people do when they heard this word that we're reading this morning? What did they do? Did they continue to doubt? Well, no, we, we see what they did. They got up and they went about evangelizing. They went everywhere. We, we read not long after in Acts chapter 8 that, that all except the apostles were scattered and they literally went everywhere and they were doing this thing, uh, evangelizing and leading people to Christ and very something we would look at very much like on the job training today. 
They were leading people to Christ at such a a rate that some people believed that before 500 years would come, that every single person on earth would be a Christian. Is that what happened? Sadly, no. Uh, Something horrible happened. Christianity became legal. Through Constantine's Edicts of Toleration, the entire Roman Empire became, quote, Christian. They flooded into the churches, but they weren't changed. They weren't saved. And so the entire church was filled with unbelievers and the dark ages resulted and have continued with a few brief specks of light to this very day. And it became in those days the job of the pastor to evangelize. It's his job, right? He should be the one that witnesses and shares. We don't need to do that. And you think we're immune from that today? I was at a pastor's conference And I had the the privilege of speaking to 100 pastors. It makes doing the the percentage math pretty easy. 100 pastors. I asked the question, do you think your church is to be salt and light? And 100 out of 100 said yes. Second question, what do you propose to do to be salt and light in your community? And 100 out of 100 said, people are going to come sit in pews. I'm going to deliver these wonderful messages and the world will be changed. Not 50 out of 100, not 90 out of 100, 100 out of 100. It was in the beginning of this denomination that this church is part of that it used to take 10 members to lead one person to Christ per year. Do you know what the number was when Dr. Kennedy went home to be with the Lord? He told me this about 12 years ago. He said, John, the number today is 300 to 1, 300 to 1, and at a cost of about $300,000 per person that comes to Christ. The problem is simply put that the fight for the souls of men has been left to the clergy today. It's been the story of the entire church for centuries. The result is that when Jesus gave the command that we just read, there were 200 million people on earth. Do you know that there are 10 times that number that live today who've never even heard the name Jesus while we're living and breathing? And the answer, according to us, is that the ecclesiastical general, the pastor, will get up once a week, deliver the message to the soldiers, then the entire army will go home for dinner, and the general will put his rifle on his shoulder and go out to fight the war, and all hell laughs. But we know the answer, don't we? Trust and obey. Do not doubt. Believe that all things are in fact under the authority of Christ and then get up and do the work that Christ has called you to do today. I share this not to discourage you in any way. I share this with you because I genuinely believe that you can make a difference. This group that's here this morning could change that statistic I shared about the PCA almost overnight. Who knows that there isn't somebody here today who's a David Livingston or a Martin Luther or a John Calvin or a a D. James Kennedy. God can change the world through you today. You do know that this church started with a mighty army of 17. Are there more than 17 people here today? I believe he can do it again, and I believe he can do it through you. The question is, will you? Now a confession as I conclude. Quite a lot of what I shared with you this morning does not, in fact, come from me. I thought on this occasion that what I would share would largely come from Dr. D. James Kennedy, the founding 
pastor of this church. What, what I shared with you this morning, I certainly believe, but it's something that I've heard repeatedly over and over again from Dr. Kennedy. And I can even say with great confidence that if he were here this morning, he would have said something like what I said today. Now, you could fairly say, now, John, that's silly. How could you say such a thing? Well, it's simple, really. One time a man asked Dr. Kennedy if he could only preach one sermon, what would that one sermon be? I can't remember if it was for a book or a series of articles in a magazine, but Dr. Kennedy did in fact write that one sermon. That sermon, that one sermon, he titled, Change Your Conduct or Change Your Name. And in it, he shared the story of a young man from Oxford and the story of another young man by the name of Jim Elliott. And he talked about how we are all, every one of us, called to be witnesses for Christ and to train up a church that was able to do that. And he ended with the story of Alexander the Great. How many of you all remember Dr. Kennedy's story, Alexander the Great? I don't see a lot of hands. Okay, I'm going to share it with you as I close here today. Dr. Kennedy said, this is a story that's often challenged his heart. It was about a man who was a great leader of men. He led an army all around the world. They, they followed him everywhere because he was not afraid to go out and fight with them in front of them, in fact, and do more than anyone else was called to do. He wasn't a Christian, as best we know. His name was Alexander the Great. He conquered the world by the time that he was 30, and I think he left a message that the church needs to hear. Here's the story. Alexander, when he had conquered the world, was holding court in his vast palace with soldiers lining the marble walls. He himself was sitting upon his golden throne. One after another of the soldiers were brought before him, and then he sentenced them as the king. There were, was no court of appeals. It was either life or death. There was no one that could deliver people from his hand. Finally, there was this young 16-year-old boy that was brought up before Alexander, blonde-haired, blue-eyed. And you could see that as Alexander looked at him that his heart started to melt. Alexander said to the sergeant, what is his crime? His crime was that he had turned and fled from the enemy and had been found crouching in a trench, hiding. Now, there was one thing that Alexander could not stand, and that was cowardice in the the face of battle. He himself had put himself right on the front line as all the Persian arrows and spears were flying around him. He could not stand cowardice by any of the soldiers in his army. So Alexander's features began to harden and, and finally he breathed a sigh and you could hear him say, but the boy is so young. He said to him, he said, son, what is your name? The guards knew that this lad had touched the heart of Alexander, and perhaps he would be spared. The young man quite proudly said, Alexander, but the smile vanished from the king's face in a heartbeat. What is your name? Now the, the, the boy understood that something was amiss. He straightened up a bit and he said, Alexander, sir, the king began to crimson as, as the blood came into him. He said, what is your name? The boy said, Alexander, sir, the king leapt to his feet and grabbed the boy and lifted him off of the floor. With eyes of steel, he said to the young boy, he said, son, change your conduct or change your name and throw him down. And then in a way that only Dr. Kennedy could do, he would change the focus 
You know what he would say already, don't you? Man, woman, what is your name? Christian, my lord. What is your name? Christian, my God. You have turned and fled from the battle. You who in craven, cowardly silence have kept your lips closed. You dare to take upon your mouth the name of him who set his face as flint unto Jerusalem. Man, woman, change your conduct or change your name. It was powerful. I I can still remember feeling convicted to this day. Now, effectively, he was saying the same thing as I'm saying this morning. What is truly necessary for us today as Christ's church, as Coral Ridge, this church of Jesus planted in Fort Lauderdale, you do know this is not a normal church. I have been literally all over the world and seen the impact of this great church. Well, we know what is necessary. Trust and obey. Believe God. Do his work understand and embrace this mission, this vision of this great church, and then do it and do it today. God bless you as you do.